Welcome to the Deerfield Family Theater Podcast. As part of our Theater D series, I had the privilege and honor to speak with Chris Causer, the director of Theater D's 2023 production of Inherit the Wind. Speaking of Inherit the Wind, in case you're tuning in and didn't already know, Theater D is putting on a performance of Inherit the Wind this April of 2023. Opening night is tonight, Friday, April 7th, and it runs this weekend and the next one. So while you're listening to this episode, visit TheaterD.com and get your tickets. Without further delay, here's the interview. Chris Causer, welcome to the DFT Podcast. So happy to have you here. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I am Chris Causer. I'm the director for Inherit the Wind for Theater D. And I also directed last season for Theater D for their Don't Dress for Dinner. Well, I, my life and I, my wife and I were laughing so much as we went to see that performance. That was our first performance back. So I'm thrilled to have you here because just that performance, we were so well put on. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Thank you for coming. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and we, a little bit of a pivot in terms of a tone, right? From don't dress for dinner to inherit the wind. And we'll get into that. But first, let's get to know you. So you're, you're directing Inherit the Wind, like you said. But what got you in? What got you into? Well, actually, my mother is a director and I kind of grew up in a theatrical family. And so for a long time, I was kind of sitting off on the sides watching my mom. And instead of having a babysitter, I would just kind of grew up in the rehearsal room. And from there, as soon as I got to be older, about like six years old, I was in my first musical. And ever since then, it's just anywhere I can fit in, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. if you are doing a show and you need help, I, I kind of try to just anywhere I can fit in. Wow. So, so it's a family affair then, the theater world for you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up into that. And then, you know, from there, obviously with high school, trying to do every single high school production I possibly could, then going off to college for theater and from there just kind of like knowing I at least was going to do that with my life just not knowing exactly what so even then coming up in that world I mean was it you know the obvious stuff as you were acting but were you also doing things like behind the scenes or with lights or like building sets like like in what what ways were you getting your hands dirty growing up in it oh definitely I mean especially when I was younger the really cool thing was that I guess we were trying not to do too much of nepotism and me being in my mother's shows or anything like that. So I would be painting sets when I was younger and then also experiencing what load-ins were. I mean, I was young and then realizing like, oh, there's a lot of work that goes into getting to do the performances and having fun. And that's all great. But the other part should be great, too. And that builds community. And so, yeah, I kind of was doing load-ins, painting. And then when you get a little bit older, you can start to work backstage. And so anytime I wasn't in a show, I was always trying to be on run crew and hopefully trying to be like a follow spot operator. I always felt like, where am I now? And then what do I think is a cooler job? And like, how can I try to get that one? And then it's more about just obviously growing older. I mean, no mm-hmm. one's going to let a four-year-old like run lightboard. But I always had these dreams and aspirations of like wanting to design lights and then figuring out okay, well, maybe you need to take a couple months off of being in a show and that way you can shadow somebody or become their assistant and you start to become a student to a, a bunch of different people, which is very good when you get older and you realize, oh my goodness, I have all these different tidbits I've picked up from different artists. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and, and so that that really like just having that sort of exposure to to more than just the acting side of theater really lends itself to being a director. Is that right? Absolutely. I think... I mean, yeah, 
Absolutely. Because I feel like to be a kind and caring director, you do honestly have to know or think about what's going on backstage at this exact time. How hard is it for you to get into this costume that I'm you know, asking for you, but you might only have 25 seconds. And it's really kind of understanding every aspect because what you could be asking for, you should know if it's going to be hard to tackle and you should know what you're asking people to do for you. And sometimes directors are like, I just want this impossible thing to happen. And they don't really think about kind of the time or energy or the effort that it's going to take to accomplish it. So, so, so tell, tell us a little bit more about, about the acting that you did, like, give us, give us some, some of the shows that you were in and, and what that experience was like before moving into the director role. Oh yeah. Well, growing up, I mean, a lot of musicals, I felt like I was always trying to wait for some play or drama that had a child in it. And most of the time I would have to wait an entire year for the next summer to be able to do the next musical for our community because, you know, the shows that were happening in the middle of the fall were more directed towards adults. And so at the beginning, it was basically every musical we could, we were doing. I started off in Camelot as just a little kid in the background. Mm -hmm. And then I think kind of understanding that I could act or was getting better at it was when we did um, the best little Christmas pageant ever or the best Christmas pageant ever. And there's a family called the Herdmans, and I was cast as one of the Herdmans where all of a sudden I had like a couple lines and I started to get really excited for that. And then there was this big state production where they were going to invite all the schools to, and it was going to become a big thing downtown where I'm from Maryland and To Kill a Mockingbird was, I was 13 and I got Jem Finch. And that was really like the brother to Scout, the son to Atticus. And that was really what kind of opened everything up for me. That was the validation I needed that somebody else thought I was talented and that I could tackle maybe a role. And that was kind of like confidence building for me. And since then, basically, as I went into 14 years old in high school was when I really started to go for not just, you know, dancing roles, which I grew up in. I was more kind of taking dance for a while as a mm -hmm. child. And so that helped me out in musicals. And then I guess because I was dancing so much, I really kind of was looking over the fence and being like, well, when do I get to start acting? And when do I get to start doing roles that don't require dancing? And so, yeah, I think right around high school was when I started to have more confidence and was auditioning for things out in the city, was auditioning for shows in my high school and just trying honestly to fill all my time up with any aspect I could. And as soon as I hit high school, I was at a good age where people were allowing me to start running the light board or the soundboard for their theaters. So if I did have some downtime, I could fill it with being able to not design yet, but work for the designers, which was amazing to me. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. And then at some point then, acting itself was not enough, right? You're looking at the next, over the next fence, over the next horizon, and, and you want to put on this director's hat. So, so what has that experience been like? Yeah. Well, as I got older, I guess like it was when I started touring and I was doing a couple of national tours like hair before that went into that famous Broadway revival production. And then I was doing a lot of like a tours that would travel around the nation to different schools or libraries. And that's where you start to meet people that are not from your hometown. And you start to kind of meet other artists that work in the same way as you. And from there, my first kind of big gig in New York City, I was from someone I worked with and they had written this fundraiser musical that was going to be at Studio 54, the Broadway theater that Roundabout works at. 
Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a one-night engagement, and it was to help an adoption agency. And the musical was called Keepers. And they knew that I had directed in my early 20s back in Maryland with the my first main stage show was The Fantastics. And it was a small show, and this theater was really looking for kind of a big change. And they were looking for more of a youthful director, and they wanted to kind of use that as a marketing ploy. And... I went and interviewed and ended up getting the position. And so at 20 years old was my first main stage gig. Did the Fantastics, really tried to change it up a bit. Um, Did a complete different version than is usually produced and kind of did some weird props and weird set designs with it when it's really not a show that has a set at all. And then from there, it just kind of helped me out a lot in terms of the reviews I was getting. And a couple of people were saying some nice things. And then it took, you know, about four more years until my next directing gig, which was I met a friend on tour and he and his partner for their company had created Keeper some musical. And they basically interviewed me and then hired me to do their one night engagement. And I mean, I met a lot of interesting people like Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul and Mary just happened to be a part of the evening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, like, I'm just, I never thought that I would start to meet people like the famous people all of a sudden. And it was cool to kind of like, I was terrified. I was not really ready yet. And also having to like work with famous people that were looking at me and being like, okay, tell me what you want me to do. Like, well, you're the director. And I was just like, I'm just a kid. But that's kind of where it first started for me in terms of finally, you know, 20 years old was great. And then it took four years. And then finally at 24 was really where it started. And I had been acting for so long, trying to show people, please trust me, or please believe me, or can I be your assistant director? I, Mm -hmm. this is something I'm interested in. And if I ever felt I had a good relationship with a director I was working with, I would ask them maybe if in the future. And so, you know, it just took a while and I just kept trying and trying and I would kept trying to act to get to the level of directing, but I always knew that in my heart, I wanted to direct. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really great tip there about, you know, there's a lot of people in the production, even if you're just acting in it or whatever your role is, but get to know the director, you know, get to know the people in the other roles that maybe you want to try out or have interest in. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, that's, you will so, see each other around. Yes, yeah. yes, especially in community theater when people are in the community. So you've, you've given me so many great potential segues. Like I feel like I have to call back to them. Like speaking sorry, of legal yeah. drama, speaking of legal dramas with To Kill a Mockingbird. Speaking of challenging the status quo with the way that have previously directed shows that we know, Inherit the Wind. T- tell us, tell us, Chris, a little bit about Inherit the Wind and maybe some ways that you're you're telling your version of this story. Yeah, the you know what's very cool about this is that it almost feels like full circle at this point in my life because when I was four, Inherit the Wind was the first show I ever saw. And my father was in it. He played Bertram Cates. And I was so young that I kind of remember tidbits of it. But what was, which is hysterical, is that we there was a real monkey in the show. And that's really all I remember of it. And I was like trying to think of the legalities and how on earth they even had a real monkey. And I was trying to think about, and I had to call back to my mom and it was a partnership with like the local DC zoo or something. And Mm -hmm. they would leave during intermission. So it was like the monkey was there in a crate with a specialist and the specialist though had to wear their uniform and they wanted, they refused to wear a costume. 
So they looked not at all like time period appropriate. And, but I was in love. And so that basically, I don't know, you know, my mom just said I was very fidgety and high strung and made a lot of noise and was kind of a, a wild child. But all of a sudden when I was in a theater, I would just sit there and they were very flabbergasted and they couldn't believe that I would just switch off and immediately just was focused. And they were like, okay, well then we'll just take them to the theater every single day. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, you know, it's been a life goal to try, I guess, to catch, to do this show, honestly. And for the past eight years, I've been shopping it around. And a lot of people have this odd idea and they always just kind of like, I don't know. I feel like it's a slow show. And I would say, you're wrong. You're wrong. And they would say, isn't that a drama? And I would say, oh, it's so funny. It's so witty. And I was like, yes, it's a drama, but it's also a comedy. And it's, it has all these different turns. And I felt like I was just constantly trying to sell this show that's been around for so long, mm-hmm. since the 50s. And I was trying to resell this show to folks and just trying to prove to them that you, you don't, you forgot the show then. You don't remember the script. You should read it. And then being able to now with Theater D and at Deerfield just feels so perfect timing that I'm glad it didn't happen sooner because every year I feel like I can find a new angle of how society and the community and the world still fits into this show. I mean, you can always pick different aspects from media to politics, to religion, to school. And then right now at this year, it just felt like I'm going to really amp up and focus on school. I want to focus on children. I want to focus on the teacher. And then from here, I guess the big thing that I tried to do was scale back a lot on all of just the brown woods of a courthouse and all of just this very like stuffy kind of small feeling. And I wanted to open it up to this really like open air, like the as if the wind can go through every single set piece and that we're really scaling back on everything except for the actors and the words and what the actors are performing. And so everybody, instead of kind of filling the stage with about 40 plus people, I brought it down to 19 and everyone plays more than one role. And it's on purpose of kind of the different characters they play. And there's a reason why one actor is playing two different people in the dichotomy back and forth between their personalities and what they believe and kind of what they offer the community to really challenge the actors too. that in one show, like show me two like both sides, show me that you can fight on both sides of this argument or this theory or mindset. And so it was really trying to stealing kind of from this 1970s Peter Brooks Shakespearean production of Midsummer where at some point in the 70s, he realized Shakespeare is being done so much. And it's just now kind of just being done to be done. And no one really even remembers that it's funny. No one remembers how witty it is. We're just kind of like watching Shakespeare and actors do Shakespeare and then going home. And his idea was, I'm going to just take everything away then. I'm going to take all the costumes away. Everybody's going to be wearing white. I'm going to turn this more into like a circus big top kind of feel where they're just going to be more all clowns that just play every role in Midsummer. That way, nobody just kind of owns one role. And I've always really thought that was interesting because the result of scaling back and changing the concept of the production, but also the style was that the words started to come up again and people were starting to listen again. 
And I feel like with Inherit the Wind, it's so perfect and it's so timely as everyone always brings up. But I always go like, what do you mean by that? How is it timely? What are you referencing? And so, and being able to take away all of this kind of stuffy courthouse feeling, I feel like what we're really doing is making everybody in the audience feel like they're a part of the jury. We're bringing all of the actors really close to them. And we're really kind of condensing the feeling or not condensing, but compacting everyone so that the audience can't just sit back and feel like they're separate from everything. They're part of the jury. They will have to decide what happens to Kate's at the end. And I feel like with that, now people are going to remember how powerful the show is, but also remember how witty and funny and hysterical some parts can be because we have kind of did everything except for the words and the emotions, which I'm really excited for. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds really exciting. And it reminds me that of, of a lesson that could probably be gleaned from going in light of the actors playing contradictory roles is that human beings are contradictions. Yeah. So yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we like to think like people are black and white and it's easier to think about that way, but the reality is so much more complicated than that. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to, to hear that that choice being made with, with the performance. And also what you're talking about reminds me of like, you know, like, you know, like on HBO, you know, there's Game of Thrones or, you know, whatever, like new crazy, you know, set pieces, then like CGI that like, that's why people are going because of the dragons. But then you have shows like Succession or The Last of Us, where yeah. There's there's less of that. And it's right. more just about the characters and the people. And like, that's what makes it interesting. So Absolutely. I'm really excited after that, after that explanation of like your take on Inherit the Wind. But let's also let's get some butts in seats. Like why? Like, why should people go to the show? Yeah, well, I mean, especially for if they've seen the movie growing up or if they have seen other productions, the one of the big reasons why of like is to see this production like you've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. I think that it's really interesting when you see shows that you've seen before but then there's new takes or new complete new aesthetic styles to them but then the other way especially is for i mean that's a big thing that we bring up all the time throughout rehearsals is there is no santa claus and there is no evil person like everyone has a lot of different areas to them and we not some character doesn't just get to walk in and be the good guy and it's really important that the audience you know understands that in all the different people as well and so from there, I think that it's so important right now, especially because of Bertram Cates wanting to teach a theory in his class and a different kind of mindset and just kind of also a lot of what ifs. And I think it's great to bring us back to being able to have what ifs in life and being able to kind of talk and share opinions and feelings without maybe being punished for them right away. And I think that this is a great point, obviously, in the show. A lot of people try to say that the entire show is about free speech, but I also think that a big part of it is looking at what happens to a small town when the media is involved. And there's a lot of reporters in this show, but then obviously there's a big famous character, E.K. Hornbeck, that Gene Kelly played in the movie. And when he comes to town, you can start to see kind of how he starts to turn a community against each other and a community that was thriving and really working in harmony as soon as something that everyone kind of feels like they need to take a side on, you mm -hmm. start to see these people start to drift from each other and start to take sides. And you think this never needed, this never needs to happen. I mean, there people saw Bertram Cates, the school teacher that is arrested for teaching evolution. You know, they saw him as a young man, they grew up with him. And now to see them turn their backs on him is 
just depressing. And it's kind of like understanding that Bertram Cates didn't change. He's still the person that they saw grow up and how could, how can they not love him anymore? And I think that this is a, a really good show anytime to see, but especially mm-hmm. right now, it's like allowing people to have a, a, a thought or a mindset and then allowing them to maybe explain it more before putting such a label on them. And that's always been important for me too, is that I always have a really hard time with um, the lack of arts education in schools. And I get very sad for no reason. And if anytime I hear of a high school that their arts program is being d- deleted, it just makes me very, just very sad all the time. And so I feel like, although Bertram Cates is talking about evolution, for me, it's really about allowing children to be creative in mm-hmm. schools and being allowing kids to take art classes or allowing them to take dance classes and things like that. So I feel like, well, I guess my through or my way in for Bertram Cates is he just wants to be allowed to expand their minds or maybe have them ask questions about kind of how the world works. And the kids aren't even the ones saying no. It's the community that's telling him he can't. Right, right. Yeah, I think uh, with a lot of the laws being passed right now in a lot of states about what can and can't be taught in schools specifically, make yeah. this make this play more relevant than it's perhaps <laughs> been in decades. Well, yeah. especially it was very scary because I always thought of my hometown as being very groovy and very artsy. And just this past year, they had to put a board together to decide what could be in libraries in schools. And I just honestly never thought that I would see my hometown in a headline like that. I was right. like, oh, those are other states. Those are other towns, not my groovy hometown. And it was last year. There was an entire committee put together of deciding and having to read because one person suggested that there should be a few, uh, a few books banned from public school libraries and it became an issue and it was terrifying to see. Yeah. 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 So, so go. So everyone listening should go theater, theaterd.com link in the show notes. So coming out of that a little bit, I'd, I'd be curious to know being so steeped in the theater world as you are, what the pandemic experience was like for you and, you know, for, for your family who, who is in theater, you know, what, what was that like and, and how was it that you were able to get through? Oh, my goodness. Well, it was devastating <laughs> at first. I can only laugh about it now because of the time, but honestly, really devastating. My creative partner, Jenny Houghton, and I have our, a theater company. And honestly, we had just created a show that did really well during 2019, and it opened a lot of doors for us. And we were just seeing a, a level of su- success that we had been striving for a, a bit for. And in the March 2020, we were in the middle of callbacks for a brand new show that I was directing that she had written. And this time, not with our money, a different theater was going to produce it. And we were just being hired and it was a whole new world for us. And then in in the middle of our callbacks, it was all over. And I would say that, you know, I slept for a year after that. So it was devastating, but, and we still haven't ever, we haven't been back there. I mean, we we're trying now, like we had to break up and she is was just directing a show at the moment and I'm directing a show for Theater D and we're just waiting until we can work on another show together but it's more like you know we're just waiting so we're constantly thinking of ideas but at the moment the you know we just have to fight to get back to where we were 
But what I tried to do immediately was I went to work for Broadway in Chicago downtown as soon as they were opening in August of 2021. Right. And uh, I just wanted to know, I mean, purely for selfish reasons, what were the rules? What were the legalities? I had no idea what venues had to do to get audiences back in. And I assumed that Broadway Chicago would be at the forefront of all that information. And obviously it's all touring companies and professionals. So I went and worked in their operations department. And so I was taking a job that has nothing to do with entertainment. I mean, it was all about fixing the theaters and getting them. I mean, they had been closed for more than about 18 months and Mm -hmm. not a single company or person had been in them. So the shows that were closed in March of 2020. When we came in there, their dressing rooms were still had those costumes in there. I mean, it was wild. Basically, yeah, I went to work for them for about, I don't know, four or six months and just they have four different venues. And it was about four to six months of just getting all of these gorgeous theaters back up and running and getting touring companies back in there. And it actually taught me a lot. And it kind of just kept my education going of oh, now I know how to move a tour into a theater and I know how to, who I'm supposed to be talking to and how the equity works and all of the IATSE unions. And so it was a good education, but I, the whole time I just kept thinking like, I did not think that this is where I would be at this moment, but I am happy to be here. And then, yeah. So since then, it's just kind of like going back. My parents took a big hiatus. My mom is just now interviewing for shows again to direct. But she took all the time off. I mean, I I don't think she, I don't even remember if she really worked on anything. So yeah, it was basically just trying to get back to doing things as much as we could. My creative partner, Jenna Lee and I, we did do like a YouTube movie, basically. We did like, you know, it wasn't live, but we did have to do sort of that FaceTime, whatever you call it, Skype sort of movie-ish. And we wrote this short movie, short film, and we worked with actors around the nation, which was kind of cool for the first time, not having to just do auditions for your local area or your region. So we met new people and we did that just to kind of, I don't know, try and keep pushing and we even put like a tip jar on the link for the actors and you know they all made like 50 bucks so it was just trying to do something and at the moment we're just trying to you know push back to that place now i think the first thing i did was don't dress last year right out of it but you know yeah it's it's sad because venues that we used to rely on are no longer there anymore and so if we could afford them back in the day we they're just it's not, we have no one to contact anymore. They just sold it. And so it's just kind of sad at the moment. It's very, it's much smaller of how and when you can produce, but we are not giving up. We're just waiting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to provide just even a little bit more context, if, if you're younger and you're listening to this, or you're going through the backlog of DFT podcast episodes, like at the time of the pandemic, if it was going month to month and we didn't know, we thought, okay, it was just going to be one more month and it was just going to be one more month. And it took six to eight months for us to realize, okay, like this thing isn't going anywhere. So it was, it was, it was really hard, especially for in-person things like theater. But so, yeah, so, so glad to that, you know, that, that we're back and and with, and with that, and with, you know, the, the audience that listens to this, we love theater. And so we're already kind of sold on it's time to go back, or it's a great podcast episode to share with others if, if you want to get them interested. But a question that we started to ask some guests is when it comes to musicals, is it okay to listen to the, the soundtrack before going to see the musical, assuming that you can go see the musical? What do you think? I think, yes. And I have a very specific answer for this. 
when I was growing up, the first time I ever saw Les Mis was this touring production and the car ride was very long. And so my mom's friend was in the front seat and the passenger seat. And she explained to me the entire musical, the entire story before we got there. And then when I saw it, I had the, it was the most amazing time. It was the best, it was the most gorgeous musical. And I felt immediately affected by it. And I think, yes, I think it's a very good idea to listen first because for someone like me, I think it's better for the words. I maybe don't always catch it if I'm hearing it for the first time because I'm like looking at all the spectacle and the costumes and the dancing. So I always think it's a great idea if you can't catch lyrics right as they're happening the first time, hear the lyrics and then hear it for the second time while you're seeing the visuals for the first time. But then also it might help you a little bit become better connected to the story if you know a little bit about it before you come. So I yeah. think yes. Yeah, awesome. Love it. Love it. Oh, so keep keeping your 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 in the theater business hat on your head. Over the years that you've been doing this, what have been maybe a couple of your favorite performances either that you've acted in or directed or done something in and why? Well, I've always worked a lot on Shakespearean productions and Shakespearean literature. And there was a production of The Tempest I directed where I took a big chance and kind of set it more in a New Orleans prison. And it's too long to try to explain all of that, but <laughs> it was a kind of a success. And I felt like it was a validation of trying things, that things will be scary and sometimes people will look at you weird as you're trying to explain your ideas, but I stuck to it and I followed through with it. And I felt like it was a really cool modern Tempest without trying to be like, oh, I'm going to put weapons in this or I'm going to like make everybody wear chains and dark eye makeup. I felt like it was a way to kind of bring it towards a modern audience, but with still keeping it really I don't know, precious. So that was a good time. And then, I mean, Raul Esparza, anything that he's in, I will always say that is the most amazing production. But I did see this production of Jerusalem on Broadway when I was going to Circle in the Square in New York City for a couple of years. And Mark Rylance is, I mean, he's kind of a famous person in theater, but not everybody knows him in movies. But he was in this production of Jerusalem that was written by Jez Butterworth. And it came over from London. And I didn't know anything about it. I just got free tickets because I was a student at Circle in the Square at the time. And it changed my life. It, it just mm -hmm. changed my life. I'm a diehard fan of Mark Rylance. I try to see him in anything he ever does. But this production seemed finally like a, it was a playwright that was taught, was writing as if people were talking nowadays. I mean, to this day, it just, it was mind blowing that it, it didn't even seem like it was dated in five years at all. It just was talking about reality, but then in this like reality based show where they, everything is real life and the rules are the same as real life. There would just be these like fantasy moments that came through. And I just, it made me realize like, oh yeah, you can do that in theater. You can do shows. Like we should take more chances on that of like, if you're watching a show and it's something very realistic, like Death of a Salesman. Well, that's not because it's very fancy based. <laughs> I picked the worst play for that example. But if you're doing something very realistic, like Inherit the Wind, right. bring that fantasy can be put in there. And to know that that's what the best thing about theater is, is that 
it has to be so manual and you can't just like create all these special effects. And even if you have the biggest budget in the world, it's still manual. And like if the, the, we're getting closer and closer with now all the projections and the LED screens that it's just kind of like, it makes you feel separate again. It makes you feel like you're watching a movie or a film. But the way that I, I kind of broke into Inherit the Wind again was realizing that the fantasy moments are still have to be seen. You have to see how the magic's happening and you have to see how we're doing the trick because it's right there. It's We can't edit strings out. And I think that that's kind of what I took from Jerusalem again was that everything was in real life, but then without any apology or them even explaining it, just something very like fantastic would happen. And then they go right back to the moment. And I'd go like, what just happened? So yeah, that one always stuck with me too. That was a big production. Yeah, very cool. Thank you for sharing. And the last question I have is personal because I have a daughter who loves to dance and loves to sing. I, well, I'm not like professionally in the theater world. I'm obviously involved in Deerfield Family Theater. We just took her to her first performance of Annie Junior, local middle school, and yeah. she she loved it. You know, she already knows the songs in Annie because we play okay. them. But you know, like as you know, as a parent of a kid who like has already showing some signs in it, like mm-hmm. like you grew up in it. So how do you do it right? Like as a parent, like to a kid coming from the kid's perspective, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I well, um, that's really good. I think. You know, my mom always let me cry if I, you know, to her, if I didn't get a role, she was great at hugging me and all that kind of stuff. But then she also explained to me right away, like, yeah, you didn't get it. <laughs> so that was always helpful. Just kind of understanding like, okay, yeah, like you're just not going to get them. But the greatest thing at the beginning was them making me realize like, well, you, you auditioned and, but you're not always going to get the lead. Like, this is an amazing, you just get what role they give you instead of mm-hmm. like kind of telling me to go for somebody specific or saying like, you should audition for this part. They just would like take me there because you don't really know as a kid what's happening at first. And you even think sometimes you're just going to sing for the day and then go home and nothing comes from it. (laughs) And you don't realize like, oh no, there, if you do well, you could be rehearsing. So they would just kind of like, let me go there and wouldn't really give me any preconceived ideas or like tell me to fight for something. And then as I got older, it was more about them just like, you know, hugging me and letting me cry if I didn't get it, but also saying like, hey, another kid got it this time, but you'll get it next time. That was a big deal for me. And, you know, there's a lot of times where when you're young, different kids your age, you know, they might be one up on you on something. And then they also made me would always kind of like tell them, OK, but what is something you do? Like, don't just look at the other kid that's doing like a triple turn or kicking their head, their foot over their head and then feeling down about yourself. What can you do great that they can't do? And kind of like always referencing that, like trying to be you and be and show your strengths rather than always trying to compare yourselves to everyone else and feeling down about yourself even before you get into the room. I mean, it's such a way to sabotage your chances. But if you feel kind of, okay, well, what am I strong at? And what am I great at? And what do I offer before you go in the room? Then you're already starting to build yourself up as opposed to like all the reasons why it's not going to work. And everyone will do that for you in life. Everyone will help mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. kind of bring you down in that way. So you don't have to do that for yourself. You can build yourself up and just know that other people are going to say things that are mean or not great sometimes. And you can let that just right off your back. Yeah. You yeah. And, and that to- 
to go back to what you're talking about, about schools and, and communities not teaching theater and the arts like they used to, this is another example of why they should, right? So for the parents listening who were skeptical, you know, even if you don't end up in the theater world professionally, you know, you learn resilience, like yes. you're talking about. You learn self-confidence. And so those are important life skills no matter where you go. Yeah, I heard a thousand no's. And then also I heard a thousand yeses. Like, it's just great to be able to, after a while, the no's don't affect you anymore. But it takes a while. But it's like, yeah. you know, it's also hard when you only have one musical a year to try out for. And that, <laughs> that no is very painful. But yeah, when you could audition for more throughout the year, then you start to realize like, okay, that one didn't work. I'll get them next time. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the DFT podcast. Again, theaterd.com for tickets and for more info about the show. And, and yeah, thanks so much for coming. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This was fun. And that's our show. Please share this podcast to help support the work of Deerfield Family Theater. An even better way to support DFT is to go see Inherit the Wind this weekend. Visit theaterd.com to purchase tickets. As always, links are in the show notes. If you'd like to get in touch, send us a voice message at anchor.fm slash DFT. We might even add your voice message to a future show. Until next time, thanks to everyone who continues to support the arts. We'll see you at the theater.